0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Good morning. Like he said before, my name is Brian Branderhorst. I am a Bible teacher at Valley Christian High School, just up in Cerritos. Actually Veronica was a student of mine way, way back, that was probably about my first year teaching. And my apologies, I had no idea what I was doing, like most first year teachers. So I've come here to try to set things straight with Veronica this morning and, uh, and uh, uh, present the Word. I'll be here next week as well, and I look forward to that. Uh, it's just kind of a two-part series, uh, just going to do the bookends of the Sermon on the Mount. And so today is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, kind of Jesus' opening, right, his philosophy, this is what I want you to think about, this is who I want you to be. And my encouragement for you during this week, if you're thinking about, hey, what am I going to do for devotions or whatever, if you don't have your normal pattern, not that I don't want to recommend his pattern, but I would encourage you to read then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Just kind of go through that this week, because next week, when I'll be back next Sunday, I'm going to teach from the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, kind of just tie the whole thing together. So, you know, just a good way to study this week would be to try to consume that middle part, but it's good to be with you, I remember learning the Beatitudes when I was a little kid, you know, I went through Christian school, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade back in Pella, Iowa, a long, long time ago, and being taught the Beatitudes and memorizing the Beatitudes, I thought, that's the weirdest group of teaching you could possibly think of, I mean, Beatitudes, what is it, I'm supposed to be these attitudes, is that what that means, like, I didn't even know what the word meant, and I remember thinking, like, blessed are those who are persecuted, and blessed are those who mourn. I'm like, what is blessed about being persecuted? What is blessed about being sad, about being needy, about, you know, like, those are for the kids on recess who get picked on. Like, there's nothing blessed about that. The only thing I related to a little bit on the Storm of the is just seemed very masochistic. And I'm a Cubs fan, lifelong Cubs fan. And, you know, we've been suffering for a century now. And so I kind of understood the masochism here, um, and just, it just seemed like kind of this woe is me, poor me sort of attitude in the Sermon on the Mount. But now as I, I grow and think and read and study, I realize I had some of that stuff wrong. Beatitudes, it's from the Latin beatus, means blessed. Okay, so I, I got that set straight. And I started thinking about those kids who got picked on at recess. Those were the nice kids. It was the kids that were picking on them that were the, the nasty kids, even though they seem to have the, the upper hand. I'm starting to realize, too, it's not really about masochism. That's not the point. It's about genuine promises central to Jesus' teaching. So I see the whole thing new. As we start talking about the structure of the Beatitudes and just where they fit and how they set and how they're put together, there's some really, really specific things. First thing I think I want you to see is this. Jesus sits on this side of the mountain. He starts to teach the people this must have been really eye-opening to them. For us in 2015 in you know, Fountain Valley, California, it might not seem like much, but this is, this is a replay, isn't it? This is like Moses. This is the second coming of Moses, right? Moses came from Mount Sinai and started to teach the people in these Ten Commandments. And now we have Jesus saying, okay, like Moses, I'm going to give you these commandments and how to live but I'm going to give you the fulfillment of the law, right? I'm not going to abolish the law, but I'm going to fulfill the law and kind of reteach this. And that's essentially what he does in the next few chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It seems to me that it's very calculated structure, not just I'm throwing out eight different phrases, like here's eight things to think about, but very much in a very specific sort of pattern. You might notice on the, on the screen behind me here just one man's particular take on this kind of a paralleled structure of the first four, of how we relate to God, and then on the second four, how we relate to others, and he even suggests that then they parallel each other, so the first and the fifth and the second and the uh, sixth and so on, so he lines them up like this, he says, putting together these beatitudes, they match up like this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for then later as it matches up on the fifth one, for they are, will be generous. The next one is more obvious. Blessed are the repentant, those who mourn, for they will be pure in heart. See, when we repent, when we mourn of our sins, God changes us and he purifies us. Blessed are the meek. When we're meek, we will make peace with people. And finally, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, but when we do, we will be persecuted. So you see some structure here. And this is one guy's structure. I've seen other structures where It actually, one beatitude leads to the next, and leads to the next, and leads to the next. And I've seen all kinds of different interpretations, but I'll say this. It's very, very calculated. Jesus didn't stumble upon any of these words. You see very specific order and process to these things. Very much a framework of everything that we are trying to get. And the big philosophy here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and again, I encourage you to read it this week, is just kind of this desperation, and then the songs that were picked this morning were, were right on point, talking about just being needy of God, and wanting God, and being desperate for God. Fast forward a little bit to the rest of Sermon on the Mount, you hear phrases like this. Again, Jesus, building upon Moses on the side of this mountain, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. Jesus says, but I tell you, do not even get angry, right? Same teaching, he's raising the bar. You've heard that it said, do not commit adultery. That's what Moses said. I tell you, do not even commit adultery. You've heard that it was said, right? He kept, this is what Moses said. This is what I teach you. And he starts raising the bar really, really high in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? He raises the bar so high that people say, but who can follow this? And he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus intentionally takes what we think are these commandments that some of us can follow. And he says, and he takes and puts them like this, way up above our head. And his point is as follows, like, you need me. You can't do it. That's the point I'm trying to teach you. You have to be desperate for me and for my righteousness. And so as he sets out in the Sermon on the Mount, kind of his introductory philosophy, if you will, he's saying, like, you need to be needy of me. You need to realize how bad, because you can't do it on your own. The next set of things I'm going to point out here, I'm taking from a guy named Philip Yancey. He's the author of a book titled, The Jesus I Never Knew, along with some other books. But he gives his take on the Sermon on the, sermon on the Mount and on the Beatitudes in particular. I'm just going to give you a few of his key thoughts and then share some scriptures and things because I think he's right on with some of these teachings. And then try to interpret each one based on these three lenses, if you will. The first one Yancey talks about are these dangled promises Okay, dangle promises like you know how we say we dangle a carrot, right? We offer a reward, we give some sort of prize. For example, right now at my house, I have uh, I have three kids. My daughter was in here a minute ago, and then I have two sons, they're three years old, and they're they're twins, and they're being potty trained right now. So every time they go potty, they get Skittles, and they love Skittles. And so these Skittles are a motivator for them. They give them hope. They give them reward. Kind of like Jesus in this Beatitude saying, this is why I want you to do this. This is your motivation. He's hanging out promises for us. He's dangling them for us to stay focused, to stay motivated, to have some sort of purpose in these things. So you notice each single Beatitude ends with a promise. And promises are sort of like a light at the end of the tunnel, right? Uh, There's a verse on the screen from Hebrews chapter 10 about promises. It says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. There's a reward at the end. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Reward is not a dirty word. Reward is, is a promise. It's good. God promises us good things. So at the end of all these beatitudes, he gives us this promise. This is reward. This is why you're supposed to do it. Because sometimes we feel like we're in crummy situations, don't we? We go through tough stuff. We battle with disease. We battle with conflict. We might battle through divorce or through loss or financial situations. He's saying, like, keep your head up. Like, there's a reward waiting for you. It keeps us faithful in tough times. It gives us foresight. Um. I'll paraphrase from C.S. Lewis, he says a little bit like this, he says, don't give up good now, or don't go for good now to give up greater later. Sometimes we do that as humans, don't we? In our sinfulness, we're so short-sighted and we go for for things that are, are good now, that make us happy now, but then sacrifice something better later, he says, keep your focus on the future, keep your head up, faith looks forward John Piper, I love John Piper, a famous pastor up in Minneapolis, and he writes about these promises. He says, with the future tense promises, we get four tastes of these things now. Like we get these rewards, we get these promises, and then later God is going to reveal to them in their fullness. The first promise we have is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? The first beatitude, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You notice what the last promise is if you start to look forward? The exact same thing, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you do these things, you will be richly rewarded. So Yancey says this about these dangled promises. I am convinced that for these neglected saints who learn to anticipate and enjoy God in spite of the difficulties of their lives on earth, heaven will seem more like a long-awaited homecoming than a visit to a new place. So these promises in the beatitude help us keep our thoughts forward. This is what he's going to do. This is what keeps me motivated. This is why I should practice these things. So that's kind of the first angle at it. Here's the second one Yancey gives, and I'm just going to jump on top of this for a little bit. He calls it the great reversal. He says in the beatitudes, basically everything has been flipped upside down. Uh, Imagine the audience here for a little bit. The audience, a certain amount. You have a whole bunch of Jewish people, and they're living in a time where they're being persecuted. You know, the Romans are living in authority over them, and they're not. You know, they don't have all the religious freedoms and rights, and they're. You know, the temple is being desecrated, and all sorts of different things going on. More than anything, out of their Messiah, they want political freedom. Right? They want Jesus to come riding in on a big white horse with a shiny sword and an army of men ready to overthrow the Romans. Take back the temple, give them their rights, their pride, their freedom. That's what they want from him. So they see Jesus sitting on the side of the mountain, and he gathers all these people. He's like, all right, we have a political rally here. He's going to assemble an army. You know what he says? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Later he says if they strike you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. If he takes your cloak, give him your tunic as well. Like, he teaches pacifism, doesn't he? Must have been very, very frustrating to people then. Must have been very frustrating, like, really, that's it? That's all you're going to do for us is tell us to feel better about it? Why can't you do something? So it was very countercultural then. It's very countercultural now as well, isn't it? We start thinking about the the things Jesus teaches, the attitudes, the practices, the habits. And they're nothing like anything from this world. In fact, I realize a lot of the theme of the Beatitudes is this. We're not of this world. This world is not our home. Everything Jesus teaches here is the opposite. In John 18, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. See, we have dual citizenship, don't we? We're citizens of the kingdom of this world. We live here in Southern California in the United States of America. But we have a different home as well and a greater home. Our primary residence is in the kingdom of God. But these Beatitudes are so different than the world we live in, aren't they? And so we're always forced to choose. We're we're pulled between the world we live in and the things the world values. And we're pulled between the values of the kingdom of God. And they're so different. I went through the Beatitudes and I wrote down what I thought would be the opposites. Okay, so we talk about this great reversal. Here are what I interpret as the opposites. Here's what the world would say for Beatitudes. First one, happier are those who are cocky, for they get their way in the world. So I, I teach at high school and I coach in a high school, like the cocky, kid, they're right, they get their way. That's the world we live in. Those who are proud, those who are rude, those who like put themselves first, they get their way. That's the world we live in. But Jesus flips it upside down, doesn't he? The second one, I just did the opposite of Jesus' beatitudes. Fortunate are those who gloat over their sins. For society sees them as cool and rebellious. Quite the opposite of what Jesus teaches, isn't it? The kingdom of the world says, yeah, you're like, yeah, you party, all right, man. You, know, you drink and you're, you're living like this. And yeah, you don't care. You can do whatever you want. You're free. Jesus says, no, that's not what it's like. The third one. Blessed are the proud, for people listen to them. Not exactly matching up with the kingdom of God. The fourth one, right? Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The world says, satisfied are people who chase after money and fame and success. That'll make them happy. Fifth, happier are those who hold grudges, because no one will dare cross them again. Sixth, happy are the immoral, for they have all the fun. That's what my students think, right? Like they're having, Mister B, they're having all the fun. Why Christianity? We can't have any fun. Number seven, famous are those who start conflict, for they get all the attention. And number eight, blessed are you when everything goes your way and when everyone likes you, for happiness is the main goal. Quite a different set of the the list of the kingdom of the God and the kingdom of this world, aren't they? I think more and more we realize, like, you know what? This is not my home. This is not what I'm supposed to be. This is not what I'm called to. I'm called to something higher, something greater, something future, not just something now. And then the third way Yancey interprets this is this psychological reality. So I'll give you one more lens, and then we'll start looking at them. The psychological reality. In John 10.10... Jesus has this famous verse, right, in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, right, or life more abundantly. I want you to have a full life. Well, how are these Beatitudes giving us a full life, life now, life here? I mean, they have promises for the future, but blessed are you when you mourn, when you're poor in spirit, when you're meek, when people persecute you, you're blessed, really? I mean, is Jesus, is he off his rocker? What's he talking about here? So is there any truth to this? Well, Yancey says this. Paradoxically, we get this abundant life in ways we may not have counted on. We get it by investing in others, by pursuing God and not self. For all their sacrifices, they seem to be more fully alive. So although these things might sound sort of masochistic, I think there's a deep level of truth. Let's try to get down to this. Is this really true? Are the rich, are the popular, the cocky, the immoral, are they really happier, are they satisfied, is there peace there, or is it those who are poor, humble, see Yancey then talks about stars versus servants, I have a picture of a couple different people, quite different people, aren't they? I think we see the values of the kingdom of heaven and the values of the kingdom of the world personified in these two characters. Mother Teresa, who says, You know, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who confess. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, the reality is this it is a psychological reality. When we live this way, when we think of ourselves less, when we humble ourselves, when we hunger and thirst for God, we really will be happier here and now. I don't mean to mock or, or poke at any of these stars, right? We have all these stars. But as I notice and look at the different stars and celebrities and idols and things like this, they struggle greatly, don't they? Hard to hold, hold the marriage together. You see a lot of uh, you know, psychological issues, a lot of emotional issues, a lot of suicidal tendencies, a lot of dependency on addictions and substances, don't you? So maybe Jesus is right. Maybe we will be happier when we're humble instead of cocky. Maybe we will be more satisfied when you hunger and thirst for righteousness instead of hunger and thirsting for fame and pride and pleasure. Resistance, sacrifice, and selflessness really do lead towards mental health and satisfaction. So with those three things in mind, again, dangled promises, great reversal in psychological reality, let's just look at these, what I'm gonna call the great eight, right? These great eight beatitudes, one at a time real quickly. The first one is this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, you could translate Blessed are those who are needy. That's the word of the day, right? Needy and desperate. Blessed are those who are desperate for Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can look at this first beatitude as this is the gateway beatitude to everything else. If you're not needy for God, we can stop right there. You have to know how bad you need Him, Right? We sing the song, oh, I need you how I need you, right? Every hour I need you. God, I need God. We, we rely on him. I'm desperate for him. This is quite the opposite. Remember Jesus teaches about the Pharisee? Remember the Pharisee who thanked God that he wasn't like other men? God, I thank you I'm not like these other sinners. But Jesus teaches there has to be emptiness and neediness and desperation before the kingdom of heaven draws near. That's a prerequisite to salvation. If we took a field trip, said, okay, if we cut the sanctuary right down the middle and everybody over here and everybody over there and everybody over here, we're going to go on evangelism door to door. We're going to go share the gospel and you guys are going to Skid Row, okay? And we're going to split this side in half and everybody over here, you're going to go to Beverly Hills. Who's going to have the most success? When people are needy and desperate, they're much quicker to accept Jesus and his grace because they know how bad they need him. Let us not I'm not poking fingers at Beverly Hills. That's not my intention because we all have some of that in us, don't we? I'm doing good. I'm fine. What do I need God for? I got my house. I got my family. I got my job. I got a car. What do I need him for? Until we have this neediness, we're in big trouble. The second one: blessed are those who are mourned. He's talking about mourning. He's not talking about crying tears. It's not that sort of mourning. It means blessed are those who repent of their sins, for they will be comforted. When we, convent, when, we, when, we con, excuse me, when we repent, when we confess, we will be forgiven and be healed. The third one: blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meek I would probably translate as passive. And I always say this, meek does not equal weak. Meek does not equal weak. I think a good example of meek would be Martin Luther King Jr. And, and some of the things that he did. Like if someone punches me in the face, there's great strength in showing resistance and not hit him back, isn't there? Meekness. Okay, the meek will inherit the earth. They'll be triumphant here and now. There's a great deal of self-control there. The fourth one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's one of my favorite ones of all the Beatitudes, those who hunger and thirst. We've got to ask the question, all of us, got to look in the mirror and say, what do I hunger and thirst for? What am I hungry for? In reality, that's a question of what do we worship? What do you spend all your thoughts on? Your time towards, your energy on, your money. What are you hungering and thirsting for? See, I have, i teach lots of students, right? And I know this. I can just see by their actions, their attitudes, their interactions with people. Some of them really hunger and thirst for the approval of their friends. It's just about being cool, about being popular, about fitting in, isn't it? Some people hunger and thirst for that. And even as adults, we see those sort of attitudes. Some people hunger and thirst for recognition because of accomplishments, right? They hunger and thirst for that sort of recognition. Maybe we hunger and thirst for more stuff, for more money, for better houses and cars. What do we really want? I believe this. Most of us get what we really want. We might not know what the costs are in the end of those things. But if we really hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be filled. What do we crave? What do we long for? What do we need? The fifth one. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer that we will be forgiven with a measure that we forgive others. I look at life and I, you know, try to analyze my own life and, and observe people around me, and I notice like some people just always are weighed down by conflict, correct? There's always conflict. There's someone mad at somebody else, and there's grudges and life's too short, isn't it? Life's far too short for those sort of conflicts and frustrations. He said, "Blessed are you when you're merciful. For those conflicts, they're going to go away, and you can live at peace with everybody. So you want peace?" Jesus says, "Then forgive. Promises here and later. Number six, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And that's a huge promise, right? The ability to see God, to know God, to walk with God, to commune with God. But he says, you want to see God? You've got to be pure in heart. I think of way, way back, all the way back, Genesis chapter 1, Adam and Eve, right? They see God, they walk with God, they talk with God. And as soon as they sin and eat the apple, what's their first instinct? To hide. See, when we're ashamed of what we've done, our shame, our guilt, our sin separates us from God because we tend to distance ourselves. Right? Just like my kids, when my kids break something at home or they lie or they go and steal all the candy and eat it all and they got chocolate all over their face, they tend to hide, right? There's separation between us. We will be separated from God when we're not pure of heart, if we don't mourn over our sins, yeah, one of these leads to another. God is the real reward here. Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers, so they will be called children of God. What a promise to be called the children of God. I was reading you know, John Piper's sermons on these Beatitudes, and he says about children of God, like the children of God, we're made in God's image, we're like a chip off the old block. If we want to be called children of God, we ought to do the things God does. God is love. You're God's kids? Then love. God is forgiving. God is just. God is holy. God is righteous. If we're God's children, we do what he does. Like father, like son, they say, right? Children of God. And then the last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, he says, for great is your reward in heaven. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Rejoice and be glad. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? To be happy about being persecuted. It's strange. Very strange teaching. I don't always have all that figured out. But I know one thing. It seems to me that more and more, just because of, I think, global terrorism and ISIS and I feel like morally and politically Christians are being persecuted more and more, I just more and more feel like this is not my home. I don't know if any of you relate to that. That's just kind of the feelings I get when I read the newspaper, like this is not my home. And sometimes I fear That my lack of being persecuted is maybe because I'm not bold enough here. Jesus said you will be persecuted, didn't he, to his disciples. Maybe it's a reminder, this is not my home. I don't need to avoid this persecution. I look at it like a red badge of courage. Hey, you're persecuted, you're doing it right. Hang in there, you're doing it right. This is not your home. This is not where you're supposed to be. So a couple of things to wrap it up here on this, some application thoughts. Just really in review of those, some of those things before. First one I have is this. Keep your head up. Kind of going back to the dangle promises. Keep your, your attention forward, your faith forward, your, your sights on things that are bigger and better than this world. Because this is not our home. Don't let the frustrations of the world get you down. Jesus has promises for those who live the way he called us to live. The second thing in application is this. You got to change your primary residence. I, I was not born. I was not built. I was not made for this place. When it doesn't feel like home, it's because it's not. That should help us to long for something better, to accept grace, to search for salvation, to seek for God. That we'd be transformed in all these things. Like, what is my, what is my focus here? For those of you who are parents, For your children. I think about this as a parent a lot. For my little kids. What are the attributes, the qualities, the characteristics that I want for my kids? Because the world teaches them to be loud. To be cocky. To be prideful. To hold grudges. What are we teaching? What are we valuing in our children, in our grandchildren? What do we praise? What do we recognize? Just when they win a game? Or when they say they're sorry when they help somebody else or just when they get an A on a test? What are the things we're noticing and praising? We should change our residence and change our priorities based on our residence. The third one I have here is to experience shalom, right? Shalom is this word for peace, but it's really bigger than peace. It's this wholeness. When Jesus says, I've come, they may have life and have it to the full, that full life, that's shalom, the wholeness. One more little quote from John Piper. He's he's kind of rephrasing this beatitudes. He says, Oh, how fortunate you are, my dear brothers. Oh, how fortunate you are to be chosen of God, to have your eyes open, to be drawn to the Savior, to be poor and mourning and meek and hungry and merciful and pure and peaceable rejoice rejoice and give thanks my beloved disciples that you are this kind of person for it is not your own doing it is the reign of god in your life so as the disciples hear the beatitudes as words of celebration about the work of god in their lives when we practice these things when god transforms our hearts when we start to follow the characteristics and the qualities we will experience peace here and now greater fulfillment later for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but we'll experience the peace here and now. And my last thing and the biggest thing is this, to be needy. That's the word of the day, right? To be needy, to be desperate. Every single beatitude and in the beatitudes as a whole and in this trajectory of this into the Sermon on the Mount says, you need God. we got to keep remembering, I need you. Every hour I need you. It's hard to do, isn't it? It's really hard to do because we have so much. Because my neediness is not right in front of me. So many of my students, and I'm sure some of you have these same experiences, they go to cross the border to work at the orphanage in Tijuana, or they go to Skid Row, or they go to South Central, they go to Long Beach Rescue Mission, and they serve the homeless, and they, and they meet people with real, physical, tangible needs, and you know what the students always come back and tell me? Man, Mr. Branderhorst, is like, they're just so happy, and they have so little. They have nothing, yet they have so much. And I just experienced God so richly there. I don't think God changes when we cross borders, but just when we're faced with our neediness, do we really realize how much we need Him? So, how do we keep reminding ourselves how much we need Him? First thing for me is this I realize my spiritual poverty. I may not have physical poverty, my physical needs are met, my mortgage is paid. I have health insurance. But every single one of us is spiritually impoverished. Every single one of us has the same thing in common. We're all sinners who deserve hell. God, I need you. I need your grace. I need your spirit. I need your transformative power in my life. I need salvation. I need forgiveness. I'm needy, God. I need you so bad. Because I realize I'm not measuring up, right? Jesus keeps putting the bar higher and higher. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you the truth. See, one of my problems is this: in terms of my spiritual health, I like to measure myself to the world around me, right? Oh yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I've never murdered anybody. I don't cheat on my wife. I pay my income taxes. You know, I, I this, I that. I don't do this. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I don't drink. I don't. Right? We measure ourselves this way so we feel pretty good and we don't feel needy. But that's not the standard, is it? See, in terms of our spiritual neediness, we need to look up. Jesus Christ is the standard. He raised the bar higher than we can ever jump. So when I measure myself here, then I realize, wow, I need him, right? Paul says where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Jesus sets the bar here. Maybe I'm living here. I need this much grace. If I'm living here, I need this much grace. Usually, I'm living here, down by my toes. I need this much grace. We find ourselves needy of Him spiritually. Physically, I start to realize this. You know what? I might not feel needy physically, but every single thing I have comes from Him. Why do I have this house? Why do I have my car? Why do I have my family? Why do I have my health? Because he's met my needs. He did that. There is no boasting in this. Like, oh, look at all this this world around me I've created. Man, I'm needy. Every breath. Every day. Every energy. Every grace. That we need him. Because in our neediness, that's where we find him. All of our real peace, our real satisfaction comes from him. Let's pray. God, we um, we acknowledge our neediness before you. Um, When we study the beatitudes, that becomes pretty obvious. But help keep that right in front of our focus every single day. Help us not rely on our own strength, on our own work, on our own merits. Uh, Remind us how much we need you, Um, God. we're, We're sorry that we're sinners. We need you physically. We need you spiritually every day, every hour. In your name we pray, amen.